0: As Martha and I approach this next week, leading up to next Sunday, these times are somewhat bittersweet for us. For next Sunday, uh, we depart for Montana. And so the sweet part is, we depart for Montana. (laughs) And we get to go and do what we feel the Lord has placed firmly in front of us, dig up dinosaur bones but really beyond that while i enjoy the work of paleontology we we get to have conversations with people we get to talk about what the creation account it looks like we get to talk with people about what brought the fossils to land where they are and we can cre- we can show them in scripture the historic accounts of creation and the flood and then give them real-time demonstrations in front of them of what that means. And sometimes we have some really unique and interesting conversations that I'd love to share with you sometime. They're not for where we're going to go today, but there's a unique, fertile ground that occurs there. The bitter part is, is we're going to have to be away from you guys for three months. We have found that our relationships with you all continue to grow and deepen, and for that we are eternally thankful. If anything, we have seen that the the strife and the noise that surrounds us around the outside of the world has a way of galvanizing us as a body, as a fellowship. But those of you that maybe have only been with us just a few weeks or a few months, you're probably already sensing that, that we have this uh, camaraderie, really doesn't even seem to address the full measure of what we feel within the body of Christ, but certainly there is that. So we're going to miss that, uh, and we will look forward to returning in end of August or early September. And... Uh, returning to fellowship. These days cause me to reflect upon really all that God has done in creation. We look at the dinosaurs as an example and we say fascinating creatures, but really what they do is they remind us of God's creative power, his His ability to design with complexity uh, On multiple levels life and so I want to kind of take us just look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and we're going to go the first five verses to kind of set a little bit of context for us but it'll give us a sense of what God is doing in in creation now before I begin to unpack any of this in Genesis chapter 1 let me just set a few little parameters because I am not unaware that to approach Genesis chapter 1 as a literal historic narrative, meaning the six days of creation really mean six days of creation, which I believe they do, I'm not unaware of the controversy that exists with that. I have been uh, not literally hit, but verbally hit on many occasions through the years after making a presentation with, Opposition along these lines. I'm well aware of that and so I want to kind of walk through a little bit of that so that we can maybe set some tones, but maybe give you all some encouragement along the way. First of all, Genesis is often review, viewed as allegory. Now allegory is the expression by means of symbolic fictional figures and actions of truths or generalizations about human existence. But that's not what I see in Genesis chapter 1 is a bunch of fictional depictions of what's going on here. It, there's two things that really cause people to drive Genesis 1 into myth and allegory. Is One is the belief that the world is vastly old, millions of years old. First of all, To determine the age of the earth is not a scientific pursuit. You cannot determine the age of the earth by sciences. Because what happens is you have to know what the history of that rock, as an example, has been. All the way back to the beginning. So if you're going to call a rock... 5 billion years old, you've got to know that that rock has not been impacted along the way. And I'm going to leave that somewhat vague and for a, another conversation, just simply let you know that what we look at to understand the age of the earth is ultimately historic pursuit. And Genesis chapter 1 sets the anchor for that. The other offshoot of why I think we have often an allegorization of Genesis chapter one is the belief of evolution now do, does life change? if any one of you in this room has a dog, I guarantee you not all of your dogs look the same short, tall you know the var- varial, the variables, but what they in intuitively have, what we can intuitively recognize within every dog, all the way from the Chihuahua to the Great Dane, if you will, is this intuitive canineness. I just made that word up right there. (laughs) In the cat kind, they have a catness about them, and you see that. So we see a range of genetic variation but they're all of the same kind. We see that grouping there. And I believe these two ideas are why a lot of scientists and even Christians want to allegorize Genesis chapter one. And I think that is a mistake because we wind up taking our presuppositions, bringing them into scripture and reinterpreting the Bible. And that's a dangerous place to be. And that is not where I want to be. I want to let the Bible be my starting point And from there, I can build on things that have flexibility, but this scripture account is my anchor. When I look at interpreting scripture, I look at, and specifically here for us for Genesis chapter 1, is a method called the historical grammatical method. First of all, I want to know the historical setting that the author finds himself in And what is going on with the people he's writing his words to. For Genesis chapter 1, Genesis is part of a large group of texts called the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Written by Moses at the end of his life. And he wrote it as a document that would go with the Ark of the Covenant for the Israelite people who would cross the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And so Genesis 1 sits as the anchor point for a larger volume of text. These people, Moses, had, 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 he knew that they had spent a great deal of time in Egypt with pagan gods being influenced by pagan gods, and he knew that moving forward they would also be influenced by pagan gods. And so how profound can it be from Moses with that understanding in place by divine inspiration to set the anchor with Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That starts as a marker for what would follow completely in, in in the Pentateuch. Now with respect to the grammatical section, the communication style, we have narrative, poetry, Allegory, parable, law, prophecy, wisdom. We understand scripture includes all of these texts. So the question becomes is, what is Genesis chapter 1? Well, when we look at it, we see literal elements in place. As an example, time, heaven, earth, light, water, land, sun, moon, stars, vegetation, swimming creatures, flying creatures, land creatures, crawlers, and humans, they're all presented to us in the text with the understanding that that is a literal creation of those various life forms and elements of creation. Secondly, it is presented to us in a flow of time. Now we're gonna look at in the beginning here in just a moment. But from that moment where time begins, we see a sequential flowing out of time Over six literal days, creation comes into existence. And we understand time is an inevitable part of how we live life. With respect to how God has ordained and set up creation, time is a difficult thing to quantify, and yet we know it exists. But once the creation week is established, Time is not an aspect of a clock on a wall, but it is really oriented with respect to how the earth itself rotates, how the moon, that would create us a day, how the moon rotates around the earth would give us a month, and how the earth rotates around the sun would give us a year. And so God, in a large-scale sense, has established time by the heavenly bodies. The only thing we don't have established in a large scale time here is the week. And the week gets established in the creation account. And so God gives us this way for us to understand and define time for us. Further, life is brought into existence in very distinct groups. Evolution has us believing that. From the primordial ooze, a simple life form has somehow gained genetic information to diversify into greater and greater and more complex life forms over millions of years. But that is not even what Genesis 1 even allows for. First of all, it sets for us the boundary that life is introduced in large scale as swimmers. As flyers, as land animals, as crawlers, and as humans. But beyond that, we see the distinction of kind. Uh, there's a new, there's a not necessarily new, but there's a field of science in the creation world called baraminology. Bara is the word created, and men is kind. Bara men, the created kind. And so, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, with the dogs. We see diversification expressed genetically over time, but with boundaries. And so, Genesis chapter 1, it does not allow for the common idea of what we call common descent or Darwinian evolution. It says that life came into existence by God's spoken word with complexity. And functionality built in right from the very first moment. Let's look here at Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read these first five verses and so we'll begin to unpack this. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters and then God said let there be light and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Now, with respect to the time, what we have see established here is we have the earth is established as a sphere, and God has separated the light from the darkness. The darkness is not an entity. Darkness is not a thing, but light is a thing. And so when I see him separating, what he's doing is he is moving light. And God is directing light. And so the globe, the earth sits here, light is coming from a direction, and it rotates in one full rotation, gives us day one. And that function is not transferred into the sun until day four when the sun is created. Now, with respect to Genesis chapter, this first verse here, In the beginning God created, there's a gentleman who died, I think, in 1904, named Dr. Herbert Spencer. For all accounts, he seems to be an evolutionist, uh, a biologist, and he is credited with making a very unique and profound observation of life. He says that all phenomena can be broken down into five major categories. These are going to be intuitive to you. You'll say, okay, yes, I see that. Time, force, motion, space, and matter. Seems logical enough. But when we apply Genesis chapter 1, this first verse here, to what, uh, what Spencer has made an observation here, we see in the beginning is what? Time. God becomes force. Created becomes motion. Heaven is space and earth is matter. What's interesting here is Herbert Spencer was not looking to authenticate Scripture, he was not looking to make a case for God. But what do we know about creation? and the divine handprint, the divine fingerprint that resides upon this creation. It's always going to show the creator. It's always going to point to the creator. In fact, as Romans 1, as Paul talks about, that every human being at least has that innate capacity to recognize that the creation reflects the creator. And the only reason we don't hear everyone declaring that God is in creation and He is the Creator because they're denying the truth in unrighteousness. Professing to be wise, they become fools in holding and maintaining this position. Now, let's unpack a little bit here. Let's start with this first word here, in the beginning. It's the Hebrew word, reshif. This means first in time, in space, or in rank. Obviously, with the context that's set before us, we're talking about the beginning of time. In fact, it's, we should understand time begins here. The second hand of creation ticks here at this moment. Time exists as an integral part of creation. We're not a static... Entity, we're not a static creation, but time helps us flow and move through life. We see the dissipation of energy, we see the erosion of our bodies, we see the erosion. If we were to leave a bicycle out in the rain, the metals will begin to break down and rust. As I mentioned earlier, time is not so much about the clock on the wall. The clock on the wall is a measuring device to help us all be sure we're on time for things. But in the, in the end, time is set as in the, within the framework and the fabric of creation. Now what's intriguing here is before the fall, God would have, in some respects, perfectly sustained his creation. But after the fall we see this erosion occurring. And so it makes it difficult to really comprehend pre-fall what that process of time would have done. But we understand it it moves forward on us constantly, regardless of whether the battery dies on the clock, time moves forward for us. We sometimes have a tendency to correlate God as having existed throughout all time I have probably have said that but that would place God and time as equal partners which is not the case as I mentioned earlier time is a created entity for creation we are bound by it we are finite beings and we we know what happened yesterday and we can anticipate what happens tomorrow but we have no capacity to move into either moment while we reside in this moment. God is outside of creation. Therefore, he can exist and does exist perfectly through all time at all moments in all capacities. And I have no idea how to to define that which is undefinable with words that I have in the human language. I have no capacities to tell you other than this is what Scripture is revealing to us but how do you how do you grasp that which is beyond comprehension, short of the revelation of scripture? how do we I only have words to define life within this creation, and yet God exists outside of that? The beautiful thing is, and I think pastor talked about this last thing last week he reveals himself within this creation and when he reveals himself within this creation he's revealing his glory to Moses in the burning bush to the Israelite nation as they cross the desert and in his son these moments are beautiful moments to capture for us and so with these thoughts in mind Maybe we can grasp just a little more tightly these passages such as Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has also said eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to end. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. God's not bound to this creation. He's working in this creation, but He's not bound to it as we are. I do so with trepidation of trying to compl- to explain reasonably complex scientific ideas in a setting like this because I don't want to lose you. But let me just give a little bit of a try here. We talked about this in the beginning. We know that God transcends creation and he's spoken creation into existence. Therefore, creation has a beginning. But the scientific community doesn't always enjoy that idea they come up with theories such as the Big Bang Theory. Now, the Big Bang Theory is not the scientific explanation for Genesis chapter 1. It is a naturalistic explanation that dismisses God, and actually its chief idea is that nothing became something. Now, if you can explain that one to me, please see me after we get through this morning, because something never, nothing never comes... Nothing never becomes something on its own. There's no such thing as self creation. It's an impossibility. And so these, these ideas that these scientists work through, uh, I was thinking about, I came across Edwin Hubble, the Hubble telescope. He came across something called the redshift. Now, here we go. Okay? Just strap in for just a moment. Redshift. That has to do with light waves. So when an object is emitting light, when that object is moving away from you, its light waves will be stretched. When the object is moving closer to you, they will tighten. So what cosmologists and astronomer, astronomers have been doing with their instrumentation, their observations, as they have began to detect red light in certain celestial bodies. What does that suggest? That, the, that those bodies are moving away from us, and ultimately that the universe is expanding. Now, if we take that idea, and let's turn it around, let's go back in time, what is happening. The universe is beginning to come together. And what scientists begin to recognize is the universe had a beginning. Another way of saying it uh, is if you think about sound, if you hear uh, an emergency vehicle and its siren, as it is coming to you it gets louder and more intense. And then as it passes, it begins to dissipate and get quieter, and that has to do with the compression and the stretching of the sound waves. And so scientists have made these observations, and at the end of the day, some of them have struggled with this idea that yet this is what the universe is telling us, but the implications are that Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, is actually true and right and has been all along. In fact, Robert Jastrow, I believe I'm saying his name correctly, astronomer, says this. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. God's word is true, isn't it? And our observations, our studies, simply just reaffirm that which Scripture has already stated to us in advance. And we can have confidence in that and we can walk in that. In the beginning, God, Elohim, it means supreme being. It can also mean be referencing angels or even fallen angels but we understand the context here is not from the angels or fallen angels, but from Yahweh himself. Creation came to exist by the power of his word. We read in John 1, 1 through 3, In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, By him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him holds all things together. God spoke, and it was. This is another one of those things where we come and we sit at the, foot of, at the feet of God and we say, I believe it. I trust it. But, I, but it is beyond my comprehension to actually digest it, to understand it. But by faith, I embrace it. God is a necessary condition for creation to exist. Now, I don't mean, I'm not trying to depersonalize God in any way. But in order for creation to exist, he must be as we understand he is. Let me walk through it this way. And if this doesn't make sense, I've got a follow-up question that will be really intuitive. First of all, everything that begins to exist must have a cause. That means something that came to exist must have a reason that precedes it to bring it into existence. The universe began to exist. Obviously, when we recognize that's not just the universe, but everything that's contained within the universe as well. The universe must have a cause separate from itself, which means that that separate cause must be non-material, eternal, all-powerful, and even personhood. We're talking here about transcendence. We call this transcendence God because we open up God's word and we see the declaration of who he is. He's telling us things about himself, of how he brought creation into existence. If you know nothing else about scripture, if you can just grasp these first few words, in the beginning God created You have got a foundation that you can build upon. In fact, I would say this. It has been my experience through the years that whenever I encounter things anywhere in Scripture and even in life that are difficult for me to comprehend, I run back to Genesis, to these first few chapters, to orient myself on the origin of what that thing is. And so this helps give me an anchor. Now here's the simple question. God is a necessary condition in that He has these attributes that that He has always been. But let's set Him aside for just a moment. Here's the question. Jake, you're going to like this. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Now. You chuckle at that, and I wanted you to, and I said it in such a way to to entice that. But that's actually quite a profound question, and if you are going to remove God, which most of the world does, most of the scientific community does, removes God from the equation, they have no answer for that question. Now, some of you are sitting out there, and you're still working it out, I can tell. Some of you are still thinking, okay, mm -hmm, yeah, okay. But where do chickens come from? They come from eggs. And where do eggs come from? Chickens. It doesn't matter how many times you do that going into the past, you're never going to come to a different conclusion. You're never going to solve that conundrum. At the end of the day, only God, as an eternal, immaterial, all-powerful, all-knowing being who can speak creation into existence can answer that question. He's the only way. Dr. Stephen Meyer says this. Genesis 1 is telling us that God is the what he calls the prime reality. He is a personal God with a mind, creative intentions, who brings the universe into existence and then through his intellectual powers shapes matter into the forms of all that we see around us. What a profound idea, what a profound understanding. In the beginning, God created. Hebrew word is bara. Barah is used 54 times in the Old Testament. 48 of those times, in a particular uh, structure of the Hebrew word, 48 is directly related to God alone as being a creator the other six times make reference to humans creating or working with pre-existing material at the end of the day bara is a word used exclusively for god and god alone what does this mean god created well let's start by looking at it from the the negative god creation is not A process of scientific formulation. It's not a process of physics. It's not a process of mathematics. I hear a lot of the laws of science or the laws of physics, thus governs, thus and such. Laws are laws explaining how something works. They are not a power and an entity in and of themselves. They are merely descriptions. If you deal with any of the sciences, you will hear that kind of verbiage come forth. Don't be deceived by that. Creation is not a work of nature. I hear often that nature did this, and nature did that, and nature thinks this. Nature is not a thing. It's a description. Creation is not from previously existing matter and energy. God did not show up and say, Oh, here, I will work with this material. God spoke his own material into existence. Creation is by the will of God. It's called divine fiat. Because God chose it to be, willed it to be, and spoke it to be. By the word of God, ex deo, out of God. You may also have heard the term ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. So in God's spoken word from his mind, creation came to exist. Creation is a work of God both in creating and making. You'll see the Genesis 1 account where you'll see both words, God created and God made. The distinction here is that in creating, he is bringing new material that did not previously exist into existence, where if he's making, he is make, he's working with material that he has previously created and shaping it and fashioning it Humans, Adam and Eve, Adam was formed out of the dust of the ground. He was made from the dust of the ground. Space. I'll just be brief with this one, but this speaks, this word here is from heavens. In the beginning, God created the heaven. Uh, your translation may be heavens, but we're talking about one. We're not talking about the unseen realm where God would dwell. We're not talking about the atmosphere. The Hebrew does not have a word for universe, so it uses the word heaven. For our context here, we should rightly understand this as the universe itself. I like to put it in this very technical uh, manner. It's the place to put the stuff, basically. Because God did not just create with nowhere to put it. He created a universe in which then he would fill it. And we see that filling. In fact, the Genesis 1 narrative gives us this beautiful progression as we see in the beginning. And we see each element brought online until we get all the way to mankind. Because ultimately that's what God is working to is the relationship uh, of Him as a triune Godhead being able to have a relationship with you and me as individuals. And He's created a world for us to enjoy in this process. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth which is matter. The Hebrew word here is aretz. This particular word has a little bit of a description that we would see following as we look at what's being created here we see in the next verse the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep we're talking about water the original creation would have been some form of a sphere of water this sphere as I already mentioned would have began to rotate I believe it had a core. The core of our planet is predominantly iron and nickel, which creates the magnetic field. This earth would have needed to have rotated. I believe that core facilitates that. But we see the Holy Spirit hovering. This has an idea of energizing. He is bringing creation to be active at a particular moment in time. Matter comes to exist and the Holy Spirit energizes creation and we begin to see the earth rotate. We see this description of formless and void and often those who might hold to a what's called a gap theory idea would see tohu and bohu are the Hebrew words, formless and void. As at Genesis 1.1, God created and then there was a fall and Satan was cast to earth, the world was flooded, there was a vast amount of gap time between verses 1 and 2, and then God starts to recreate the world. That's not what the text is telling us, nor is that what we actually see in the world itself. And so there's just just a nice progression, and what this phrasing is giving us is simply that The world is incomplete, it has not been filled out, and its shape is somewhat yet to be fully defined, as we would see on day three, where the land masses begin to take shape and anchor the world itself. As we look at the Earth and its unique place in this universe, uh, there's an argument in apologetics called fine tuning it has to do with the fact that the earth inhabits life and we know we know our scientific community is desperate to find life somewhere else desperate they spend more time looking at other places than to do recognizing the beauty that's here it seems Because what we have here in this earth is a unique creation, a unique world in which the combination of elements, of water, oxygen, the distance from the sun, all create this perfect scenario for life to exist. Now if you're a Big Bang person, you're thinking, okay, singularity exploded and things just spun out, all of a sudden things just started organizing themselves. But this speaks to design, and when we think of design, we think of a mind, and we think of a mind, we can translate that into understanding of God. These points here I think I've got up here is just a few things. The gravitational constant, that means gravity pretty much works the same all the time everywhere. That's not just important for us to walk, but it's important for life to exist. We have a large moon with a particular rotational phase around it, which also helps to maintain the health of our planet. We have, we're in what's called the habitals, habitable zone within our solar system, which again, orients our place just right our temperature falls in the right range. While days may get hot and days may get cold, our planet maintains a particular temperature range that enables life to exist, and even we have the, uh, the rotation of the Earth's axis that enables seasons to exist, which Genesis, four ta- uh, Genesis 1, day four, day four. Er- Earth's orbit is nearly perfectly circular, So when the Earth orbits around the Sun, if it had a very elliptical rotation, you would have some extreme cold as it got far away, and you would have some extreme hot as it got closer. But because it's nearly circular, we have a very constant. Earth's gravity keeps moisture from slipping into space. There are literally dozens and dozens of these observations for this argument. And the conclusion I've got to come to is, is this just happenstance over millions of years of unguided, unnatural, uh, naturalistic processes? Or is this the work of a creator? Do we see evidence? I think we see evidence of a, of a creator here. Earth is no accident. As I mentioned earlier, and kind of begin to bring us to a conclusion here. We as created beings, as we look at Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That sets a nice anchor point for us, but in the end we see creation progress all the way down to you and me. We bear the mark of a creator upon us. The complexity of our bodies, defies any evolutionary process. But we also bear the mark within our souls, our capacity to learn, to think, to be creative. In a fallen state, we rebel against that creator, and so therefore we distort that which God has placed within us. But in a redeemed state, as we see the sanctification process grow, we continue to have that mark of the Creator, that fingerprint of the Creator manifest itself all the more in our lives. When you think about the Gospel of Christ, Jesus Christ, who is Jesus and what makes Him a worthy substitute? To hang on the cross. Well, first of all, he serves as the creator. We see the triune Godhead in these first five verses. In the beginning, God. We see the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the deep. And then we hear, and God said. And when God speaks, it's Jesus Christ. And so we see the Trinity right here on display in these first few verses. And so, God's creation, as we see Genesis unfold for us, is God created a perfect world for us to live in. And in rebellion, we sinned against a holy God, and death has entered into this world. Death is not a natural part of this creation. I mean, we're all going to die, but we're not going to die because it was part of the original plan, if you will. But it's We die because we sin. And we have to deal with that reality, which what which is what makes the gospel so much more profound as we're reminded that Christ's work on the cross is he is creator, he is also redeemer, and he is also righteous judge for eternity. And so I like to anchor us here because they recognize the chaos of the world is really saying one simple thing. It doesn't matter what your theory is, critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, uh, cancel culture, they're really all saying the same fundamental idea. I'm rejecting the God of creation. It's really not complicated. They're rejecting the God of creation. And so uh, I'm thankful for for this opportunity to share this with you this morning. I would ask that you continue to pray for Martha and I as we make preparations for departure for next week and uh, that we have a summer that uh, brings honor to God and we will miss you guys. But we're not gone just yet. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for the opportunities for us to be able to gather together this morning and to enjoy opening up your word and really beginning to in light of your wor- of your word and its anchor and its and its foundation in our thinking, to then turn and look at the world around us and to understand uh man there's a there's a there's a beauty and a strife that exist together and in that we can And that we can see you moving and working and and anticipate the culmination of all things. Thank you again for your blessings and your encouragement of the day. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.